we're going to kind of just work through uh, Romans in, in order tonight because uh, it is probably one of Paul's most, uh, well, most well-known of his letters, but certainly in it, uh, he, he extends an argument for righteousness, that is right standing or justification with God over several chapters. And uh, so from Romans 1 to Romans 16, uh, Paul is, is building like, like building blocks or Legos, one thing upon another as, we, as he works through his letter, uh, making his case. Uh, very likely, uh, Romans is, is some of your favorite book of the Bible. I've done my best to convince you that it should be Exodus, but some of you are, are holding on to Romans as your favorite book, and I'll allow it. Um, Romans is a, is a fantastic letter uh, of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. There's so, mu- so much of what we understand about how God works in salvation is made clear to us in the book of Romans, in this letter uh, of Romans. There are in this letter several points of doctrine or of theology that have been um, a little bit controversial uh, over the last two millennia of Christian history. It is not my desire or intention to dive into any of that controversy tonight um, because I think there's, there are more important things at play than little bits of, of theology or doctrine. Uh, I, I owe much of my understanding uh, of the book of Romans to a dear, dear friend of mine, Trevor Clark, who uh, is a far smarter person than me and a way better scholar. And he's here tonight. So all the questions that I don't answer about Romans, you can ask Trevor about uh, after we're finished. Uh, but be kind of, he just, Trevor works at the BSU with college students and he just, he and his wife, Amanda, just got back from fall retreat with the students. So don't ask him any hard questions, okay? Softballs only for Trevor. Um, but, but seriously, Trevor, thank you. We spent a couple hours together just talking through Romans and, uh, very helpful for me. And I pray that you will be edified, um, uh, by that as well. Well, let's, uh, let's just dive right into this book and let's deal with some of the particulars uh, about this book. This you have there, um, uh, on your, on your kind of your note sheet, your outline there. Uh, first of all, the author obviously is Paul, the apostle, uh, the former persecutor of the earliest Christians. The date of the writing of this letter is somewhere around the year 57 A.D. It's not the first of Paul's letters, but it is the first that's uh, first in order in terms of the New Testament. It would help us to understand uh, a couple of particularly important events in history in Rome surrounding uh, the time of Paul's writing, or at least preceding Paul's writing of this letter, because it says it helps us to understand a lot of what's going on in the letter itself, particularly the relationship between Jews and Gentiles uh, that Paul talks about so much in this letter. In the year 49 AD, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from the capital city of Rome, according to what one ancient historian Suetonius calls a conflict among the Jews over a man named Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. More likely, the historian Suetonius was mistaken. The conflict was not actually over Crestus, but over Christos, that is the Greek word for Christ, that is to say... Uh, Jews in Rome, some being believers in Jesus, the Messiah, others not, were fighting over who is this Christ and what do we do with him? And the conflict had gotten to such a point that Claudius said, enough of it, all of you go away, just get out of Rome, I don't want you here. So in the absence of Jewish Christians and Jews generally uh, in Rome, the church in Rome began to grow among the Gentiles, non-Jewish background believers. 
When the emperor Claudius died in 54 AD, his edict uh, banishing Jews from Rome was uh, overturned. It was reversed and the Jews were able to return back to Rome. So now you have in Rome Jewish and Gentile Christians beginning to worship together in Rome for the first time. And as they're worshiping together, confusion between them uh, begins to come up over the function and the necessity of the Old Testament law and specifically the application of the law in circumcision uh, um, uh, and, and the role of circumcision for the life of the believer. You had Gentiles that were coming to Christ for the first time from non-Jewish backgrounds. They were aware of the Old Testament scriptures, but they weren't practicing circumcision. And then you have these Jews that are coming back into Rome saying, no, 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 no. If you really want to follow Messiah, uh, you have to be circumcised. You have to be fully a Jew. So it was into this new multi-ethnic church that Paul writes concerning the importance of justification, not by circumcision, not by following the law, but being right with God by faith in Christ alone. And that is, is really the content of the letter, the, the sort of summary or the, the subtitle for the, the, um, for the message tonight or for this book is, that, is just that, justified. How is it that we are justified, made right with God? Now, we've said before that this is not Paul's first letter that he wrote, uh, more likely 1 Corinthians is. Uh, but Romans is Paul's first letter in order, in order of appearance in the New Testament. Um, I would say maybe even his most important of the letters that he writes in his life and in his, in his ministry. In it, he clearly shows, this is under your summary of Romans there in your note sheet. He clearly shows that all humanity has fallen short of God's perfect righteousness because of and by their sin. God's gift of the law to Israel, that is the Mosaic law, what, what uh, Moses receives at Sinai and, and gives, to, uh, gives to the people, that which we saw in Exodus and Leviticus and uh, reiterated in Deuteronomy. Uh, the gift of the law by God to Israel was for Israel's benefit so that they might know God's righteous standard and that they, uh, and specifically that they cannot attain God's righteous standard on their own. They can't be righteous like God is righteous. So to be justified to God then, Paul would say no one can trust in his or her own efforts, uh, particularly efforts in the, in the way of circumcision, but instead must place their faith in the sinless Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who died for sins on the cross and was raised from the dead for their justification. That's Romans kind of in a nutshell. So far so good, Trevor? All right, good. He wouldn't rebuke me publicly anyway. There are several things going on in the book of Romans, but three major themes that I would point out to you that as you read, be looking for these things when you're studying Romans on your own. First is this, that all humanity has sinned and is separated from God. All humanity, man, woman, child, Jew, Gentile, American, European, African, Australian, all have sinned and are separated from God. The Old Testament law, that which we get in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, reveals the righteousness of God. The Old Testament law functions to reveal God's holy perfection. Thirdly, justification with God is not by following the law or, or, or being, uh, 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 doing all the things of the law, but justification with God is by faith alone. And we're going to be talking through the month of October as we revisit the Reformation, uh, that justification, salvation, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that those three theological convictions are all over the book of Romans. 
as we think of this letter and its uh, relation uh, to the scope of redemption history, uh, I would place uh, Romans squarely in that category of redemption. It tells us all about how uh, people are redeemed, are saved, rescued from their sin. We know that we've all been created by God for a relationship of love, worship, and obedience to him. But we in our own sin have fallen. We've rebelled against God. We're separated from him. But he, in his love for us, sends his son Christ to die, taking the penalty for our sin. As Paul will say in Romans 3, to be a propitiation for our sin. Um, <clears throat> he, is, he is the, by faith in him, we receive God's grace and we are saved. And look forward to when Christ will consummate his kingdom. As you read Romans <clears throat> on your own, it's helpful to be mindful of the genre of, uh, of the, the biblical literature that we're reading at this point. Now, so far in our series, in, in, in this woven series, we've been looking really only at historical narrative up to this point. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, all historical narrative, telling a story of, of what has gone on in Israel's history and how God has worked through there. We've, in the New Testament, looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four Gospels, but they're still in the same sort of uh, genre of historical narrative, but with a specific emphasis on Jesus. And then the book of Acts, which is more uh, historical narrative. Now we're making kind of a hard shift away from historical narrative into the genre of epistle or epistolary literature. Epistles or letters are often written to specific churches with a specific occasion or conflict or issue that the writer is addressing. Most of our New Testament epistles begin with a theological foundation. There's an explanation of what God is doing or why people are to believe what they are to believe. And then a move to more practical application. We see this very clearly uh, in, the, in the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesian church where Paul spends the first three chapters or so laying sort of a theological foundation for who they are to be as the church. And then in chapters four through six, he moves right into practical application. We've seen that a little bit as well in our... A Sunday morning sermon series in First Peter, where Peter takes the first chapter and a half of his letter, uh, laying a, a theological foundation for what the church is to believe about who God is making them to be. And now he's moving into practical, practical application of what that looks like. How, does, how do we live that out? So as you read Romans on your own and you're seeking to apply it to your life, I would commend to you uh, these three questions to keep in your mind as you're working through it. First of all, what is the occasion or the issue? What's the conflict that the author is addressing? We said earlier that, that uh, Paul here in Romans is addressing some of the conflict that arises uh, in the Roman church as Jewish believers return to Rome and, and now are encountering Gentile believers. And they're trying to figure out how is it that one is really justified? Who is really a Christian? Ask yourself, what theological principle is guiding the letter or principles are guiding the letter? If it's a book like Ephesians or, or, or here like Romans, you know, Paul spends the first 11 chapters on theological foundation and the last four on practical application. Um, but we need to, to try to glean from that the, the principles that are grounding what the letter will then instruct us to do. And then ask yourself this. As you seek to apply what Paul is, is saying in Romans or any of his other letters, uh, for that matter, uh, we need to do uh, this little bit of work and ask ourselves the question, in what ways is the occasion or the conflict or the presenting issue of the, of the letter that's being written or the audience that the letter is being written to, how is that similar to our present day? 
So for instance, uh, in our church, we don't have, uh, at least that I'm aware of, and, and if we had it, I would be surprised if I wasn't aware of it, conflict between Jews and Gentiles over who can really be saved. Now, if that were the case in our church, Romans would be very applicable toward that conflict. Now, Romans is applicable to our church in many, many, many other ways, um, but it would be directly applicable in that way. Um, so we do well to ask of the text, what things are going on here that are going on in my present context? Um, or... Uh, Where does the the way in which uh, Paul or Peter uh, or any of the letter writers, uh, the way in which they're they're making a they're they're applying a theological principle to a conflict? How is that maybe similar in our church uh, or or in my my present life context? So those are just some helpful uh, questions that I hope are helpful uh, as you read through Romans or any of the other epistles uh, in, in understanding it. And, uh, and applying it to your life. I would also commend to you um, a, a good study Bible. I use the ESV uh, study Bible, and it has uh, copious study notes that are incredibly helpful, especially with the letters uh, where there are special circumstances and things going on to help kind of clear that up and help you understand that a little bit better. Romans in outline... I would break it into four basic parts. Other people would break it into maybe more parts or fewer parts, but this is how I would break up Romans, and this is the way that we're going to work through the book together tonight. First of all, uh, we see in chapters 1 through 3, man's unrighteousness before God. Uh, Paul demonstrating that all men, all humanity, are unrighteous before God. In chapters 4 through 8, he moves to discuss man's justification with God, which is by faith alone. In chapters 9 through 11, uh, Paul uh, uh, writes about the purposes of God's just sovereignty, his justice in his uh, sovereignty as, as creator of the universe and author and perfecter of our salvation. And then chapters 12 through 16, this is that practical application bit. This is living as those who have been justified by faith. He spends those chapters there talking about that. So let's then try to dive into Romans and uh, by God's grace, we will be edified uh, by it as we do. Let's look first at chapters 1 through 3 and man's unrighteousness before God. In these, uh, Paul begins his letter this way, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. In in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul demonstrates to us that God's right or man's uh, God's righteousness or righteousness period is defined by and received by God. Look at chapter one, verses 16 and 17. This is kind of Paul's thesis for the letter. This is the point he's going to try to make in the rest of Romans. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or some of your translations may say, from, uh, by faith from first to last. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness is a characteristic that God owns. 
Righteousness is defined by him, not by us, not by our good works, but by God and his character, his, his very being. He is the one who reveals what true righteousness looks like. Verse 17, in it, in the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for the salvation of sinners. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So already in his letter, he's telling you how you can have life with God, how you can have righteousness. The righteous shall live by faith. But Paul is good to give us 16 more chapters about how to do that. So unrighteousness is defined by God. It's, it's revealed by God. But man's unrighteousness, we see in the rest of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, our unrighteousness is universal. There's not a single person that has ever lived up to or attained God's standard of righteous perfection. In fact, every human being has done the exact opposite. Romans 1, 18 through 32 demonstrates to us that even though creation gives us evidence to God's existence, his sovereignty, his power to create and to sustain the universe, even evidence to his care for creation, we have all rejected and neglected that knowledge. And instead, as Paul says in Romans 1, 21 through 23, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile, this pointless in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 32, he says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Even those who heard from God clearly. So that is to say all people have done this. We have all taken things in creation and have worshipped those things rather than God who has created them. We have seen God's divine attributes and the fact that he is able to create the things that we see. We can be aware of God's existence and his divine power. We see those things. Those things are evident to our eyes and to our hearts. And we have seen those things about God. and We've said, nah, I'm good. Right? The kicker is that in chapter 2, even those who heard from God clearly as he spoke to them in his word by his prophets and his law, here I speak about Israel, the people that God has chosen to be those from whom the Messiah would come, even Israel has committed the same rejection of God. But some Jews will certainly ask, we're God's chosen people. Or we have the law, we have the covenants, we have circumcision. To which Paul answers in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. All that is to say that everyone that has ever lived on this earth under this sun has sinned against God, whether Jew or Gentile. Not a one of us has ever honored God rightly in and of ourselves. And we cannot do so. We're all guilty. So then if Jews and Gentiles are all guilty of sin and circumcision, particularly for the Jews, doesn't justify anyone with God, how then can we be right with him, you may ask? Paul is good to tell us in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Don't you love Paul? I, I do, I'm a linear thinker. I'm an A, B, C, D, E kind of thinker. And Paul is a linear writer. And so this is a man after my own heart. Paul says this in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God, that is God's righteous perfection, his holy standard, has been manifested, has been revealed apart from the law. 
apart from the, the rules and regulations that were given to Moses at Sinai, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there it is, isn't it? The answer already to the question, how can we be justified? It's by faith. That is by trust in Jesus, whose death is a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, because I know we don't use it every day, means that Jesus' death satisfies God's just wrath, his just anger, uh, the, the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Jesus' death accomplishes what the law and circumcision and good works never could. He appeases God's wrath for sin. But Paul has still yet to make his case uh, further. And to do so, he turns to Scripture to demonstrate that man's justification is by faith alone. And here we move to the second point, or second movement of Romans. Paul begins to make this case by using Abraham, Father Abraham, as a test case. Paul doesn't even bother working his way through Jewish history to make this case. He just goes straight to the beginning of the people of Israel with Father Abraham. Now, he could have started with the last of the prophets and slowly worked his way back to make it. But he said, I dispense with that. Forget it. We'll just go straight to the source. So he goes straight to Abraham. We know that in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is called by God and given the promise to be the father of many nations. And then in Genesis 15, the Bible says, Abraham believed God. He believed the promise of God and, God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, his faith, his trust in the promise of God made him righteous with God. Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, word for word. He reminds the Roman believers that it wasn't until after Abraham had already been counted righteous with God by his faith that he was given the covenant sign of circumcision. You catch that? Abraham justified by faith, uh, made righteous by faith, then circumcision. So how is it the people are made righteous with God? How has it always been that they've been made righteous with God? By faith. You guys are so smart. Justification has always been by faith, by trust in the promise of God. It was that way for Abraham and it is that way for us too. Being right with God by faith, by trust in Jesus puts us at peace with God with the God that we once spurned, the God we once rebelled against, as Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says. Uh, Paul, uh, there Paul says, Therefore, we have been justi- because we've, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is because of God's love for sinners. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, while we are still rebels against the king, traitors to the king of the universe, he loves us and shows his love for us by sending his son, Jesus, to die for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified, made right with God by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we are still sinners, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
Man's justification by faith alone began with Abraham. Paul uses Abraham as a test case for, for making his point. And as we have been redeemed, as we've been justified by faith alone, we go from one kind of living to another. Justification moves us out of one sphere of life and into a completely different sphere. Being right with God through faith in Jesus has real spiritual ramifications for you, Christian. It moves you from one sphere of existence to a different one, from the realm of sin to the realm of grace, from the line of Adam to the line of Christ, from one who receives death to one who receives life. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That is to say, when the first man, Adam, sinned, he became a sinner. And he brought death into the world. And because he became a sinner, all of his offspring would also be sinners. You have Adam to thank for your sin. Thanks, Adam. But you know what? You are still responsible for your sin. As one sin led to death for all kinds of people, God has made a way for one man's righteousness the God-man, Jesus, to lead to grace and life for all kinds of people. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that is Christ's obedience, even to the point of death on a cross in the place for sinners, this leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So grace then is not like sin. Sin comes through Adam and sin leads to death. Righteousness comes through grace in Christ and righteousness leads to life. Christian, you and trusting Jesus have moved from one kind of living to another. Because we've received God's grace through faith in Jesus, we've been saved to a life that is free from and apart from the sin that first condemned us. It's true that God's grace is greater than all the sin we could ever commit. We just saw that in Romans 5, 20 and 21. But we've been saved not so that we can continue to sin and God's grace can continue to abound greater than our sin, but rather we've been saved, we've been redeemed, justified so that we can strive to live holy lives. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, that is, the members of your, your, your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. No, one sphere to another again. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. Romans chapter six, verse 23, because the wages of sin is death. What you earn for your sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In being made justified to God through faith in Jesus, we go from living from uh, living one kind of life to living another kind of life, from living under the, the realm and the influence of sin to the realm and the influence of grace and righteousness. And in so moving from one realm to another, we are then forever united, not anymore to Adam, our father, according to the flesh, who sinned and made us all sinners, but now we're united forever to Christ. Paul recognizes that even while believers are saved, they still struggle with sin. Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 20. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I do want to do. Wretched man that I am. 
Our sinful nature, though crucified with Christ, does not go gently into the night. Rather, that sinful nature rages within us. The spiritual desire for holiness, the physical draw towards sin, and the physical draw towards sin causes Paul to say this internal conflict, wretched man that I am, who will ever deliver me from this body of death? Romans chapter 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Since then there is salvation by Jesus from sin, even with this internal tension between wanting to sin and wanting to be holy. So since since there's this salvation from, from Jesus from sin, justification with God, there's also no longer condemnation for anyone who is in Jesus by faith. That is to say that to be in Jesus is to be united with him. And since, no lo- and since sin no longer has any claim on your soul, any claim on your life, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God nor remove our justification. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then there's great reason for anyone who has ever placed their faith in Jesus to know that you are saved, you are just as saved from your sin today as you will ever be, and that you have no reason to fear the death that sin brings. Even in death, you cannot be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can take you from that. So Christian, rejoice in that. Christian, live day to day in the security of knowing that you are firmly held in the hand of Christ because you have trusted in him. The joy of Paul's union to Jesus, though, only serves to highlight in his mind the separation that still exists for his own people. His kinsmen, the Israelites, who don't yet trust Jesus. Certainly those Jewish background believers at Rome would at this point uh, probably point uh, at this point would, would ask, would, might, would wonder, would say to Paul, what then do we do about those Jews that don't know Jesus? What, about, what do we do about our brothers that don't yet know Christ, the, the ones that are counting on their circumcision? We're united to Christ. There's nothing that can separate us from him. But what about our brothers and sisters that are still Jews and living under the law? It's at this point that Paul, as every believer should, rests on the purposes of God's just sovereignty. We ask big questions like that. God, what about these people? I know that I'm saved. I, I, I trust that and, and I'm walking faithfully. But what about these people that aren't? People that I know, people that I love that aren't saved, that don't know Christ. And so in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul takes measures to uh, elucidate the purposes of God's just sovereignty. To point to us that, that God in his sovereignty is doing something on purpose in the world, even among those who are not yet saved, particularly Jews who are counting on circumcision. Paul's heart is undeniably for his people, the Jews. He writes in chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I, wish that I, uh, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is, for Jews, is that they may be saved Paul loves his people, the people from whom he comes, and his heart breaks for their lostness. You ever had a friend or a family member, as much as you love and as much as you have endeavored to share the gospel with them, they just have not believed? 
You have friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors that your heart just breaks for because you know that they're lost. That, that's what Paul is feeling about his people, the Israelites. Likewise, he recognizes that, that salvation awaits all who will trust Christ by faith. So he affirms this. This is true. I, I love my people, the Jews, Paul says. I want so badly for them to be saved. But there's only one way that they will be saved, and that is by trusting in, in Jesus. So whether it's the Gentiles or the Jews, all are justified by faith in Christ alone. He says in Romans 10, verses 11 through 13, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But still, there are some, don't we know, perhaps many, who in Paul's day and in our day were not willing to call on Christ, are not willing to place faith in Jesus. In Paul's day, the Jews were rejecting the gospel, telling Paul that perhaps that he should be ashamed of it, uh, going against what he says or, or maybe eliciting his response or what he says in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There were Jews maybe that were saying that his gospel of, of, of justification by faith in Jesus wasn't actually bringing any Jews to faith at all. And so it was pointless. It wasn't helpful. There may have been some who asserted to Paul saying, your gospel is failing, Paul. You're preaching to the Jews and not a one of them believes you. The very ones who should believe you don't. Either the gospel is wrong or God is unjust, Paul. Figure it out and tell us what the answer is. Which Paul then counters this possible charge by saying the gospel hasn't failed. The gospel hasn't failed. God is just in all his purposes. He shows us in chapter uh, 9 that the, that the gospel is continuing to be successful. The gospel has not failed. In chapter 9 verses 6 through 13, Paul reminds his readers that not all who are among the circumcised of Israel are circumcised in the heart. They're not part of true Israel. There he says... But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Not everyone who is circumcised in the flesh is circumcised in heart. There's application here for the church as well. Not everyone who just goes to church on a regular basis, not everyone who says that they are a Christian are really, truly a Christian. Only those who have really, truly, sincerely, in their heart of hearts, placed their faith and trust in Jesus. You can get by in the church pretending to be a Christian. But God knows your heart. God knows who is truly saved and who is not. And this has always been the case among the church, among Christians, but also always among Israel. There have not always been, all of Israel has not always been true Israel. Not all of Israel has been circumcised in heart, Paul would say. And at this point, he reminds the believers to which he's writing that God has always acted according to his own sovereign will to achieve his purposes. He chooses some to bless. He chooses others to harden. He says in verses, chapter 9, verses 14 through 16, which we read, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Is it unjust for God to save some and not others? 
Paul says, no, absolutely. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So one is tempted to ask, if God has mercy on Gentiles by calling them to faith, but doesn't have mercy on some Jews, he doesn't save them, they're not coming to faith. Perhaps even the majority of Jews, he's not calling them to faith in Paul's day. Has God then determined not to have mercy on the Jews at all? Has God rejected his people? Has he consigned them to hell? Has he moved on to a better plan? Paul says, no, absolutely not. Rather, he declares that God has allowed in his day, in Paul's day, a partial hardening of the hearts of many people in Israel so that in their rejection of the gospel, God might send then the gospel to the Gentiles so that Abraham certainly would be the father of many nations, not just the father of the nation that practices circumcision, but of every nation. And as uncircumcised Gentiles are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus and grafted in, adopted into God's true people, God intends that non-believing Jews should then become jealous of God's grace to Gentiles and then be saved by faith in Christ themselves. Look at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 16. Paul says this, So I ask, did they stumble, here speaking of, of Jews that don't believe in Jesus, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so, the whole, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This is the beautiful purpose of God's sovereignty, of his divine intention in, in saving people. That as he foreknows from the foundations of the world, all who will be saved... From among Jews and among Gentiles, he chooses to temporarily harden some of those whom he will eventually save so that in the present time, the riches of his grace might be shown to all people, both Jew and Gentile. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, Paul says this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. These chapters, Romans 9 through 11, bring to mind all sorts of questions about uh, predestination and election and what is God doing and who does he save and all this. I don't know that it's Paul's intention to make a case for God's purposes and predestination here. I don't know that that, that Paul is making, uh, if you will, the, the Calvinist argument here. I think rather he's asking some rhetorical questions to point out to, to some Jews who, who are not sure what's going to happen with Jews that are not so believing Jews, uh, uh, pointing, uh, to answer questions as to what will happen to non-believing Jews. He asks this rhetorical question. What if God, what if God does this? What if God doesn't save some so he can show and lavish his grace upon some others? Are you going to call God unjust? 
To which everyone says, no. Right? God has always been in the business of hardening and softening and calling and pushing people. We see it in Exodus where God hardens Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardens his own heart against God. And Paul is asking a question so as to, to engage the thinking of those that he is writing to. Are you going to question God's good purposes and God's sovereignty? Can you know, can you mine the depths of God's wisdom and justice and grace and mercy? No, no. So then would it be totally out of the realm of possibility, Paul is saying, for God to harden some Jews temporarily so that Gentiles can be saved, that those Jews that God previously hardened would be jealous and then softened and won over to the gospel. Sounds good to me, I think is what Paul is saying. God, whatever you got to do to call people to yourself, to redeem them and rescue them from their sin by faith in Jesus, you do it. We trust your purposes. In Romans chapter 12, chapters 12 through 16, having laid the, the foundation for how we are justified by faith and that God does all things good. God does all things well. He does all things according to his purposes. To show mercy to people, to show mercy to sinners who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. He then gives us instruction for how we are to live as those who have been justified by faith. What does it mean to be a Christian in this world and a follower of Jesus? How do we live? Whether Jew or Gentile, anyone who will be forgiven of sin and right with God will be so through faith, faith in Jesus. And in their justification, they're called to live God-honoring kinds of life in this world. And here's where you're really disappointed because I'm just going to gloss over these chapters. You can read them on your own. They're fairly straightforward. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 particularly, that those who are living, those who live as those uh, justified by faith in Christ are lived to be transformed by the Spirit of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may that, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're called to be spiritual people and people who are transformed spiritually by the Holy Spirit in us so we know God's will and want to do God's will. We don't look like the world. We look like Christ. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. People who have been justified by faith are not just transformed by the Spirit of God, but they're also respectful and submissive citizens. We talked about that this morning in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, but here Paul makes the case in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Be a, be a transformed Christian by submitting to authority when it's hard to do so. By following the directions of, of governing authorities and, and the laws that, that rule the land. We said this morning, my, my line of submission to government is drawn at the point where the government uh, tells me I cannot speak about Christ, share Christ, or worship Christ openly. Right? That, those are things that God has commanded me to do. So the government tells me, don't do that, or anything that's contrary to the gospel. My submission to the government stops there, or at least my submission to following their rules stops there. However, I still submit myself to their judgment. We look at uh, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 as they're standing before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin tells them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. To which Peter and John say, uh, whether it's right in the sight of God to do what you say or to do what we know God has commanded uh, us, you judge. But we cannot 
help but do what God has commanded us to do to speak about Jesus. So there you have Peter and John defying the rules of the Sanhedrin, but still submitting themselves to the Sanhedrin's judgment. If you're going to judge us for this, that's fine, but we're going to be obedient to God. We also live as those who are justified by faith by encouraging one another in the faith, building one another up, giving grace to those who are weaker. In uh, Romans chapter 14 and 15, uh, uh, up through verse 7, this is the the, the focus of, of Paul's instruction here. It says in chapter 15, verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We do well, we do right, we have been saved to encourage one another in the faith, to endure with patience and grace those who are not as mature spiritually as us, to help them to grow, to set aside our rights and perhaps our liberties, our understanding of what it is to be free in Christ so that we can be uh, an encouragement, be an edifier of those who are desiring to grow in the faith, who need to grow in the faith. So there you have it, I hope. Romans from 50,000 feet plus. What about Jesus in Romans? Christ is the center of all of Scripture. All of it either points us to him or, or points us back to him. So where do we see Christ in Romans? Well, first of all, maybe most in, importantly, Christ is the manifestation of God's righteousness. We saw in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that is, uh, Christ's obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the manifestation. He's the embodiment of God's righteousness. He is the perfect standard of God's uh, holiness in flesh for us to see. And he dies that we might be saved. We see that Christ, secondly, is our deliverance from God's wrath against our sin. Paul says in Romans 3, 22 through 26, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friend, there is no deliverance from your sin. There is no forgiveness or righteousness, justification with God apart from Christ. You and I, each of us, has a debt of sin that we cannot uh, return or pay to God. We can't make up for it. We can't settle that debt. Christ dies on a cross in our place. The sinless Son of God dying for sinful humanity so that we might have our sin debt paid for, taken care of. Christ is our deliverance from God's wrath against our sin. Finally, Christ alone is the object of faith that justifies You want to be right with God? You want to be justified to God? Trust Jesus and only Jesus. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Friend, do you know Christ this way? Christian, are you walking with Christ in full faith every day, moment by moment? Knowing that you have no other righteousness before God but through him. Is this the message that you share as you proclaim the gospel into a lost world? That there's no way to be right with God but through faith in Jesus? Or are you relying on moralism? Well, just do a little bit better and maybe God will help you a little bit. It's not going to save you or anyone. Doing a little bit better didn't do any good for the Jews who are condemned even in their circumcision. Paul says, all of God's grace is to us by faith in Christ alone and only in him. Christian, you make sure that Christ alone is the object of your faith that justifies you with God. And in that, celebrate. In that, be, be encouraged, knowing that you can't be separated from God, from his love, which is to us in Jesus. Because Christ has died once for all, that all who have faith might be saved forever. Let's pray.